Good morning, everybody. Just a little thought on uh, on the parasha. Today is uh, Purim Katan, February 23rd, 2024. Usually we don't say the date, but uh, just to be able to relate. Today, uh, we weren't able to be there, but we at least got to see pictures of our granddaughter Shushu in her Sidur play, and she should be uh, really incredibly honored. We're so proud she was able to get her Sidur from Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau, which was something unbelievable. Uh, I think that picture is going to be worth uh, so much to her later on. And I have a story, hopefully, that I can share to you, share with you about uh, the Lau family. So uh, yesterday, uh, for those who weren't aware, we had a uh, AT&T network uh, shut down uh, across the country, except uh, I wasn't aware that it was an AT&T network shutdown in my wife Chantel said this is really perfect class but what's funny was that I wrote sitting in the car yesterday not knowing exactly what was going on I decided to start dictating to Siri so let me share with you I wrote it's 11 a.m. Thursday morning I'm driving back to Manhattan I came to Brooklyn this morning to make three condolence calls but since I left my house early this morning I have no cell service I have no ways so I'm not sure how long the drive will be. I can't listen to any classes. So I'm hoping, with the help of Siri, to get a jump on this week's article. The lack of connection and how in these few short hours I've been dealing with this loss of a cell phone reminded me of the words of the Orachayim HaKadosh on the opening portion of this, on the opening verse of this week, Parasha, Parasha Tesaveh. The Orachayim HaKadosh, he quotes Shemot Rabbah, where he tells about the scoffers amongst the Jewish people who ridiculed the idea that Hashem would really put his presence in this Mishkan that Moshe Rabbeinu was building. And even though we saw the miracle of the first day of Nisan, when everyone was able to see, they didn't believe that Hashem would keep his presence in a way there on a permanent basis. Says, but what happened? is once they observe the ongoing miracle of the Western lamp, what does that mean? The Gemara says that the Ner Tamid spoken of in the Torah is referring to the Ner Ma'aravi, the Western candle, the Western lamp of the Menorah. It served as a testimony for all mankind that the Shekhinah dwells among B'nai Israel. The uniqueness of this Ner Ma'aravi, this Western lamp, was that the Kohen always put into it a half luke of oil, the same amount of oil as was put into each of the other six lamps. A luga is about five and a half ounces. This was sufficient to last for the longest nights of Tevet during the winter, and yet it outburned all of the candles. All of them burned the entire night, and they would extinguish in the early morning. In the summer, when the nights are shorter, they would burn into the morning hours. After they went out in the morning, the lamps would be cleaned out and fresh oil and new wicks would be placed in them. This service was known as Hatavat HaMenorah, preparing the Menorah for lighting. The candles would not be lit again until the late afternoon. The western candle, however, continued burning the entire day until it was time to kindle the Menorah again in the evening. This miraculous uninterrupted burning of the western lamp went on all the years of the first Beit HaMikdash, it's 410 years, and served as a testimony for Hashem's presence in Israel. This western light continued 
to remain lit during the 40 years that Shimon HaSadik was the Kohen Gadol, during the early years of the second Ben HaMikdash. So, the Orachayim continues, this, which we just explained, served as a testimony that Hashem's presence was there to stay. And he continues, he says, the Torah pressed upon Moshe that the oil for the Menorah in the Mishkan would become the vehicle by means of which Hashem's presence in the Mishkan would be demonstrated when this Ner Tamid would be lit. So I thought to myself, we have bars on the phone to indicate connection. While they had the flame on the Menorah to indicate their connection with heaven above. So what went through their minds when the flame went out? Must be a mistake, must be something I did wrong, maybe we need a reset. So when I got in the car in the morning and I put the address into ways of where I was going, I noticed the phone had no service. And sometimes this happens, so I put the phone into airplane mode and then back into standard mode because that causes the phone to search for a signal. It searched but found nothing. Instead of any reception lines, there was something strange. It was an SOS in the right-hand corner. So I decided to reboot the phone. I figured if I turned it off, turn it on, maybe it'll kick back in. I fully expected to see that I had service, but still, there was just that SOS in the upper right-hand corner. SOS, universal distress signal. I went into settings and tried to see if anything was amiss, and then I wondered if Maybe AT&T is damp. I said, nah, that's impossible. Split second, I thought, maybe we didn't pay the bill. I, that's not possible. And I thought it was unlikely that AT&T was down because the other carts were all driving next to me. And you could see where they have their phones sitting in the holder on the windshield. Their ways was working. And I thought, you know, heaven doesn't break the connection. It must be me. You know, maybe the AT&T, uh, the, uh, the network was down in Atlantic Beach, but I'm sure that once I got over the bridge, we would reconnect. And that's what I thought. And as I got over the bridge and up 878 towards Rockway Turnpike, still didn't change. It was early, so I decided to stop at a clinic there, as I had some things in the trunk to dip. Turned the phone off again while my hand froze. I dipped a frying pan dip some other utensils, dip some glasses, whatever Chantal had set aside in a bag that was placed in my trunk. And I wondered if when I got back to the truck, to the car, maybe by zehut of me going, doing the dipping in the mikveh, making the beracha, maybe the phone will fix. But it didn't. So now I started to say, it's probably me. It's either my phone got infected by a virus, did I open anything I shouldn't have opened, Maybe I messed up some setting without realizing, uh, almost like a, like a pocket dial. Or maybe there was some issue with my internal antenna, which I thought was probably the most likely. And I'm thinking, do I have to go switch my phone, get a new phone? Do I have an old phone that I could use in the meantime? But I knew that I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't figure it out. I needed an AT&T store to help. Now, when you first find that you're disconnected, you really panic. Is it me? Is it them? What if someone wants to reach me? I'm expected to be connected always. Now I'm not connected. Is there a payphone? And I started looking for one on the street corners and the gas stations on the Bell Parkway. I had quarters. I just needed a phone. I was hoping to at least give someone a call. 
you know, maybe I'll call Jono. And he'll at least text everybody in the office uh, group, in the, in the family group, and make sure everyone knows that I'm around, but I'm not connected. But no, no, no pay phones anymore. So later on, I was driving on Coney Island Avenue. I see a cell phone store. I say, oh, maybe I could stop there. Maybe they could help. Pull up in front, and I look, and I see, no, nah, we don't open till 10 a.m. I was hoping 8 a.m. So, as I said, I went to pay some condolence calls, and at, at the, the second house, I thought maybe I should borrow a phone and make a call, let everyone know. But it was pretty much me and the family who was sitting shiva, so I didn't bother. And as I got back into the car, not having removed the phone from its windshield holster, I thought about how at first I panicked. I felt so lost without a connected phone, without Waze. And the truth is, without Waze, I definitely drove a few extra blocks, more than I thought. I didn't realize that the numbers, I should have known, being in Brooklyn all those years, but the numbers, for example, on Bedford Avenue don't relate to the numbers on East 23rd Street, and the numbers on Coney Island Avenue don't relate to the numbers on East 9th Street. So I actually had to backtrack going back and forth. Okay, but that was the worst. So, but you feel lost without a connected phone, without ways. You know, you get used to something. And without being able to look up where I was going or to let anyone know where I was. And it's a day and age people start to worry if they're out of touch for even a moment. And that, that initial panic, though, it gradually led to a feeling of being anxious. And that lessened to a feeling of concern. And finally, there was acceptance. And I thought to myself, you know what? Hashem disconnected me. There must be a reason. Let me just go about my day and be able to do what I need to do. So I was sitting in the car. I said to myself, you know, I have another mitzvah to do. Let me go do it. And at each visit, I realized that without a phone, I was more focused. And I really thought about the fact that, you know, the rabbis tell us better to go out to a house of mourning than, than, than a house of joy, than a wedding. And when you go to a house of mourning and you speak to the the people and you hear from them the stories about the person who passed away and they're meant really they're meant you always want to know what's a beautiful ma'ala what's a beautiful midah of the person who passed away that i could take on and think about for myself and each person had something beautiful that you could walk away with and i felt you know we go to comfort but i felt so much stronger walking out of them and then i said to myself i'll be in the city by noon i'll stop into the the office, I'll go around the corner to AT&T, and they'll figure out what it is. Either they'll fix it, we'll get a new phone, whatever it is it is. And I wondered if this is what happens with Ben Israel. The candle goes out, the line is dead. You start to wonder, is it a mistake? Can we reboot? Can we light it again? And between the end of the first Bet HaMikdash and the beginning of the second Mikdash, those, those years, Maybe there weren't as many bars, you know, and that we, we, we started a, a new Bet HaMikdash. And maybe there weren't as many bars in the second Bet HaMikdash as there were in the first Bet HaMikdash. But then we had, like we mentioned, the, the years of Shimon HaSadik, there was this steady connection. And then the Greeks came, and the lights go out. At first, we went through the steps. It must be something on our end. Reboot, relight, do something. But all we got was SOS. Until the Maccabees showed up. And with the Maccabees, what happened? 
we were able to light again, to reconnect again. But then the Romans came, and poof, the lights went out for a long time. The Hoshech up in home. I imagine that as we turned off our connection, whenever we felt like it, you know, I, I, you know, if you read from the Nevi'im, it seems like, you know, when the Israel wanted to come be with Hashem, they wanted them when they wanted to come and do whatever they wanted to do, they just turned off their connection. At some point, I guess, Hashem finally reacted in kind. We say, Hashem Silecha, Hashem's your shadow. So maybe it could also be for the bed, although it says, Al Yibilecha. The light of the menorah went out, the bars went out, it was SOS. And maybe we as a people went from panic to being anxious to being concerned, and finally complete acceptance, and then we didn't even realize what it was like not to have a phone in the first place. The tragedy, I thought, is that with acceptance, we steadily forget what we lose. We don't even realize what it was like to have the connection. Imagine myself. Okay, I had a phone. Now I don't have a phone. So, worst is I have to go back to a payphone. I have to go back to the maps. My dad's hags from maps that sat in the door of the car. I had to go back to sending messages to an answering service, to a beeper, to an operator, maybe even to a telex machine and the messengers that we have to use. And you say, okay, we survived, we could survive. We don't even remember what it was like to have that always open, clear, and direct connection. I guess it's human nature. We deal with whatever we have to deal with. As I finished dictating this to Siri and thinking about the people in the time of the Ben HaMikdash, they had this unbelievable connection and suddenly, the connection was lost and it was tragic and how could they get reconnected? But days go and days go and suddenly you accept it and suddenly it becomes something you don't even remember. You know, we mourn for the temple, but we don't even know what we're mourning because we don't even understand what it was like to have that connection. So as I finish dictating this to Siri, the strangest thing happens. I'm moving from the Prospect Expressway in Brooklyn up onto the Gowanus leading into the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, or whatever they call it these days. And the bars lit up, messages started coming in, service was back. What happened, I wondered. Was it not my phone, or what is it, or did my phone just kick in? I made a call to the office, but became disconnected after a few seconds. I tried texting, but the phone went back to SOS. Now, I really was confused. Was it my phone? Was it AT&T? Do I need to go to the phone store? And, and, and the service is out again. It's, it's a puzzle. What's going on? I couldn't figure that at all. There was a connection, however brief, and it reminded me that potentially the system worked. And then I thought about, was that little brief second that I had going into the tunnel, was that brief little second going into the tunnel a reminder like Hashem sends us reminders and the little miracles and the coincidences in life and tells us, hey, the system works. I'm really here. I just shut it down. How easily do we forget those reminders that the system works and all we need to do is figure out how to reconnect. And then I came out of the tunnel. It was light. And I headed on to the FTR. And you see the water to your right and the bridges. And suddenly service returned. Then I noticed on the family chat, I saw an image of AT&T. AT&T was down all across the country and was gradually coming back. What happened? I don't know. No one knew. I don't even know today. And what would happen if everyone disconnected? 
you know, I thought for a second, the, the Greeks, they came, they disconnected us in the Mikdash. The Romans, they came, they put us into this endless exile, which we hope will end very quickly, very soon. And we'll see Mashiach, the Rabbi Amen, Amen. But on a, on, a, on a phone level, what happens if it was the Russians? What happens if the Chinese? It's scary. How much are we dependent on the technology that we have in our lives? But for a brief moment, I understood what the light of the menorah meant. When it was on, we were connected. And when it shut off, we were in a panic of SOS, distress of no. That first verse in the Torah that the Orachayim is commenting on ends with the words, Ner Tamid, everlasting light. And as I made my way towards the office, with the service going on and off, SOS popping in, lines popping back, I prayed that we would be zocher to all see that Ner Tamid lit speedily in our days with a perfect and strong signal and a perfect and strong connection between us and our Father in heaven above for all of us to be able to see it in the Bet HaMikdash, but I'm in on it. Now, when I visited the, the different people, I tell you, it really was something, something, something that you take something away from. I saw, I saw a friend of mine, uh, Mars Mizrahi, his brother's Jackie, and, and we sat and spoke a little bit about their mother, Mrs. Shelly Rami. Her name is uh, Rachel Batsara, Lea Shalom. And all the wonderful things she did and how she lost a child who was only nine, nine years old. And in those days when nobody talked about losing a child, when people sort of buried it under the rug, what did she do? She started a bereavement a group of people to, to talk about it, a group of mothers. And, and I remembered some of the kids who passed away then and we spoke about them and they knew them and they really said how much this made a difference in those, in those families' lives that instead of burying the pain, instead of not talking about the pain, instead of, letting, instead of just letting the pain manifest within, they were able to talk about it and deal with it. And you took something that was so tragic, such a nightmare, and made something beautiful out of it. And a year later, plus a day, she was able to have another baby, a baby girl. And I met her daughter, who, Baruch Hashem, has a wonderful family, lots of kids. And yet you try to look, even in tragedy, we try to look for the silver lining that Hashem gives us. I went to visit a family of Eliyahu ben Odet, Eli Mizrahi. I met them in the synagogue on Shabbat morning when their father had passed away in the hospital. And you saw these bright lights, which are these children, sitting with their mom. And they were such a special, special family. And spoke to me about the humility of their dad and how he, he looked and lived through life. And it really reminded me so much of my family, of, of my dad, of, of, of Nuri, Dayan, of, of, of the, my grandfather, of how they lived their life in such humility and did so much for other people. It was, it was so, so inspiring. And then I got to see Rabbi Oziri, who was sitting for his sister, and he told me all about her. And I met her husband and her son. And again, it was, it was wonderfully inspiring, really, really special and inspiring. And then last night, I got to see friends and, and spoke about their mother, Sandra Hirschhorn, and Again, it's just inspiring how how people live their lives and, and and something that you have to realize is that we continue our lives, we continue their lives, 
in our lives. They live really through us. And I want to just close, and I'm going to go back to the Rabbi Lau. I heard an incredible, incredible story. It was from one of Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau's sons. His name is Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lau of Netanya. And he was being interviewed, and I heard a rabbi tell over the story. He had heard the interview. And he said that the rabbi was asked, why did you become a rabbi? And, you know, you could say, you know, well, you could say it's a family business. You know, my uh, father was the chief rabbi. My brother is the chief rabbi now. My grandfather was, etc., etc. But he tells a story that one day he received a call from a young lady who asked him to please officiate her wedding. He was in Netanya. She lived further south. And he asked her what the date was, and she gave him the date, and he realized it's Erev Pesach. Now, for a rabbi in Erev Pesach, it's one of the most difficult days. People are selling the chametz. People are asking you questions. You have the Erev Pesach. You have the, 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 the selling, the, the searching for the chametz. You have all of these things going on. And that's the day that, that someone's going to ask you to do a wedding. You really have no time. It's one of the busiest days on a rabbi's calendar. And he apologizes. I, I can't. I can't commit. I have so much that day. But a couple of days later, she called him and begged him, please. And he said, no, it's really so hard that day. And a couple of days later, she called him again. And she begged him. And he said, why me? She said, I saw you do a wedding. You, you were amazing. It was so special. Please, I'm begging you. You're the person I need to marry me. And he said, okay. But you have to get married early. You have to get married by 5 o'clock has to be chuppah so that I have time to get back to Netanya to deal with all the things I have to deal with. And she said, for sure, we're going to run this time exactly as you say. So that afternoon, he drives from Netanya, he gets to the wedding. And there, he's introduced to the grandfather of the girl, an older man who had just arrived in Israel from Argentina. And the man turns to the rabbi and says, Shalom Aleichem. And the rabbi says, Aleichem, Shalom. And the, rabbi, and the man asks the rabbi in Yiddish, I wish I could say it in Yiddish, where are you from? And the rabbi says, he's from Netanya. The rabbi asks the man, where are you from? And the man says, I am from a place called Pietrikov. Rabbi Lau said chills went through his body because that's where his father's family was from. His grandfather, all his, his great aunts, his great uncles, his aunts, his uncles, they were all there, and pretty much the entire family was wiped out by the Nazis, Yimach Shemam, with the exception of his dad, who was saved as a boy, and his uncle, Natali. You have to read the book if you never read the book about Rabbi Lau's life. And the man asked Rabbi Lau, Do you know who the last Jewish couple was to be married in Pietrikov in 1942? And Rabbi Lau says, No, I have no idea. And the old man very proudly says, it was me and my wife. And the man asked the rabbi, and do you know who married us in the last wedding that took place in Pietrikov in 1942 before the Nazis came? And the rabbi says, no, I don't. And the man very proudly says, it was the chief rabbi of the city itself. It was Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lau. And the next day they were taken but he was the one who married us. And Rabbi Lau shook. And the old man asked Rabbi Lau, Do you, did you ever hear of Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lau? And the rabbi said to him, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lau, he was my Zeta, 
He was my grandfather. And I am Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lau, his grandson, named after him. And the rabbi said that he thought about it for a second, and he was wondering why this girl kept pressing him to come and officiate her wedding. And he said to the man, you know, your granddaughter called me again and again, and I didn't understand why it was so important. She told me she needed to be here. And now I understand. The Germans may have thought they destroyed everyone, and they pretty much almost killed out our entire family. But look how seven decades later, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lau, who married the grandparents, represented by his grandson today, me, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lau, am zocher to marry off your daughter. And this relates to how he decided to become a rabbi. We realize that where our parents and grandparents leave off, we must continue. And thinking about this, I see it as a message of immortality. Hashem never forgets. The young lady pressing the rabbi to come out and officiate at her wedding didn't realize that she was connecting the dots of history. And I always think about that, that our souls and potential, maybe you could call it DNA, but I think our souls and potential, they're within our great-grandparents and grandparents. All of the souls of their descendants are there. And we come from there, we're connected to there. And then back within our souls, are the souls of all those who preceded us. We have the DNA that goes back and says you all came from such and such. So within us are the souls of those ancestors. We're really all connected. And what they can't finish, we need to finish. We've been through almost 6,000 years of history. The time is coming for history to come. They've done so much work. They built so much. They created the foundations. It's up to us to continue their work. We lose them, but we don't lose them because they're still within us. And hopefully we can fulfill our destiny and do what we're supposed to do and bring Mashiach very speedily in our days. And with Mashiach, to see when the dead will rise from the ashes, from the ground to sing and dance and enjoy with us in a future world. Olam haba in this world. Shabbat shalom, everybody. Happy Purim.